0: Finishing up our series on spiritual warfare today. And I want us to read Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 as we start off this morning. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17. And it says, take the helmet of salvation, which we talked about last week, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Today we are finishing up this study on the full armor of God. We have covered a lot of ground over the past few weeks. So before we move on, I want to spend just a few minutes to very briefly review the other pieces of the armor and what they represent. First of all, we saw the belt of truth. It represents a, a life that is built upon faithfulness to God and on his, to his word. Truth is absolutely foundational to us as Christians, and when we say truth, we're not talking about my version of truth, your version of truth, um, but the truth that's found in the Word of God. That that is something that we have to hold on to. Um, There is no such thing as relative truth. We are not entitled to our own truth. We're entitled to our opinions, but there is only one truth. When we're talking about salvation, that's in the Word of God. And unless our lives are rooted and lived out in godly truth, we will not be able to stand when the devil attacks us. The breastplate of righteousness was the next thing we looked at. It speaks of a a holy life. It speaks of a life that is lived in conformity to the Word of God. Not not a bunch of rules and regulations of our own making or of somebody else's own making, but conformity to the Word of God. It's not self-righteousness but the kind of righteousness that we can only get and receive from God through Jesus Christ. A life lived out in this type of righteousness is the kind of life that has been made righteous by what Christ did on the cross, and it is a powerful defense against the attacks of the enemy. But if we allow sin to live in our life and dwell in our life, then we give Satan an end, And be assured, he will find that place. If there's a little break in the armor somewhere, he will find it and he will use it to attack us and exploit us. But godly righteousness, godly righteousness closes the door to Satan and protects us from him when he attacks us. The next thing we looked at was the shoes of the gospel of peace. It refers to our foundation in Jesus Christ. When our feet, as, as Paul wrote, when our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, it means that we know that there is only one way to salvation, and that is by grace through Jesus Christ. And because we know that, we stand in that knowledge. We stand firm in that knowledge because we are wearing the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And even though Satan might try to make us doubt that we're saved— when we are secure in our salvation, we are at peace in the knowledge that, that, that we are saved, so we stand strong and we cannot be moved. The next thing Paul wrote about was the shield of faith. It speaks of simple faith in God. It is the kind of faith that allows us to trust in him at all times. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, it is the kind of faith that when everything is going great, We believe what Romans 1.17 says, that the just shall live by faith. It also means when things are not so good, when things are just plain old bad, when we are struggling, we still believe in that scripture that says the just shall live by faith. In addition to protecting us, when we raise the shield of faith together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we become an even greater force against the devil and his attacks. The next thing we looked at was the helmet of salvation. It speaks of having full assurance that God is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. Whether it's saving us from a life of sin or providing for our needs, even in the most difficult of times, we still trust and we still have the faith that he can do that. The helmet of salvation protects us from the double-edged swords of discouragement and doubt that we spoke about. When we start to doubt that the Word of God is true, or maybe we believe it's true, but the devil starts to convince us that it's only true for somebody else. It's not true for you, but it's true for all these other folks on this side. And that's what he does. He'll try to get us to think that, well, even if the Bible is true, it's just not true for me. And when that happens, that doubt often leads to discouragement. And if we let discouragement linger very long, it will take us out of the battle and it will destroy us. I will tell you that doubt works in other ways too. When we are unsure of our relationship with the Lord, we will become easy prey for the enemy. But when we are confident that we are saved, when we are confident that the Lord is able to keep us, we have the ability to stand for him even when the devil attacks us with doubt and discouragement. So that's how far we've made it so far. When we go through a lengthy series like this one, I think sometimes we we look at the individual pieces of armor that Paul wrote about. We hear the words about what they are. We see the spiritual application. We maybe even believe it. And then, if we're not careful, we walk away saying, I don't see a war. I don't even see a battle. Why am I wearing this armor? And we take it off and we lay it on the ground. Let me say this about that. We need to understand that whether we see it or not, whether we want to be a part of it or not, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And our enemy, the devil, is powerful. He is determined, relentless. And the other thing is he's had a lot of practice. He's been doing this since Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and he's very good at what he does. The bottom line is that Satan will do everything in his power to destroy our faith and to draw our attention away from God. But time and time again, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul assured us that it is God's will that we stand against the attacks of the devil. We don't turn and run. We stand. And remember what Paul wrote about standing. He wasn't saying that we stand around and do nothing. That's not what he was talking about. Instead, standing as it's used in Ephesians 6 speaks of a soldier who refuses to yield one inch of ground to an attacking foe. And let me assure you that it's an ongoing battle. Be assured that the devil will do everything in his power to take away the blessings that you have received. He will try to make us believe that the promises in the word of God aren't for up for us. And then for those things that he can't actually take away from us, he'll do everything he can do to diminish their influence in our lives. So if we're going to stand and hold on to these precious things that God has given us, then we must put on the whole armor of God. With that said, I want us to look at the last piece of this, this armor, and that is the sword of the spirit. We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So today let's look at this last piece of armor and see how this sword, the word of God, can empower us and help us to overcome the devil. All of the other pieces of the armor this is important here. all of the other pieces of the armor that we've looked at so far have been defensive in nature. But this piece of armor, the sword of the spirit, is an offensive piece. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. It is not enough that you are not conquered. You have to conquer. And hence we find that we are to take not only a helmet to protect the head, but also a sword with which to annoy the foe. End of quote. And let me say this as well. Just because this piece of armor is for offense doesn't mean that we have to be offensive when we use it. There are two words used for sword in the New Testament. One of these is the word "ramphaya." This type of sword is typically, it describes a, a long, broad sword. Hang on just a second. I don't have a sword back here. I thought I had a pointer, I don't have one of those either. I ordered this just for today. I was gonna point, it's the actual guy on the bottom here. This type of sword is typically a long, broad sword. As you can see, the guy standing on the ground has a very large sword. It's probably the image of what most of us think about when we think of a sword. It's a two-fisted, long, broad, double-edged sword. We saw last week that this kind of sword was often used in battle by cavalry soldiers who were on horseback. And they used it for slashing at the enemy in attempt to, to cut their head, either gash it open or cut their head off. So that's one word, romphaya. The other word that we find in the New Testament that describes a sword is the word makara. This word refers to a a long knife, or probably more accurately, a short sword that was carried by Roman soldiers. These swords varied in length somewhere between 6 and 18 inches long. It was the type of sword that was used in close hand-to-hand combat. So you couldn't use a a three-foot sword when you're standing right next to a guy here. So this was a hand-to-hand combat combat short knife sword that you could fight hand-to-hand. A similar version of this sword was called a gladius by the Romans. It's what the gladiators used when they did the fights in the Colosseum because they were fighting close with a small shield that we saw a couple of weeks ago. So they had a small shield and a short knife. So that's what this sword is. The word that Paul uses here in Ephesians 16 is this second sword, machaira. He's thinking of the short sword carried by every Roman foot soldier. Someone's probably thinking, well, that's maybe the coolest thing I ever heard in my life. Or maybe not. Instead, you're thinking, why is this important to us as Christians? Hang on. We're getting there. This sword was the the soldier's primary weapon in hand-to-hand combat, and this blade was carried in a scabbard. And where was the scabbard, you might ask? It was attached to the soldier's belt. There's that belt of truth again. Without that belt of truth, there was no place to put this sword. It was attached to the belt, so it was always available and ready to use. Most likely, this is the kind of sword that Peter used to cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. A short sword. On a side note, I believe that the image of Peter cutting off this guy's ear is a great lesson for us, and this is why I say that. I think it's safe to say that Peter wasn't aiming for this guy's ear. He wasn't that good. He was a fisherman. Most likely, he was trying to cut this guy's head off. But the problem was, he didn't know how to use what he had. In the same way, we can carry around a Bible everywhere we go. It might be even a gigantic Bible, complete with the words of Jesus in red. There's nothing wrong with that. But it will do us no good if we don't know what we have and we don't know how to use it. I've seen people that just carried a Bible around. Didn't know what it said. Couldn't find a passage of Scripture. Saved their life. They just carried a Bible around. And that's about Mike Peter carrying a sword around. A fisherman carrying a sword that was used, made, designed for a soldier, and he didn't know how to use it. So when he went to cut a guy's head off, he instead cut the guy's ear off. But again, in Peter's defense, he was a fisherman. He didn't really have a a lot of reason to be a skilled swordsman. This type of, of short sword that we're talking about here was an indispensable component for a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers not only used it to defend themselves, they also used it to help accomplish day-to-day tasks around the camp. But again, as with all the other pieces in this armor that we've looked at so far, the sword Paul was talking about here is not a physical sword. Paul identifies this sword as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this sword is a spiritual weapon that is to be used by believers in our conflict with Satan. Paul first says that this sword is of the Spirit. What does that mean? This refers to its origin. And it's a reminder to us that the Bible is not a man-made book. The Bible is a spiritual book that came to us from the Spirit of God. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says this, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See how that fits in with what we're talking about here? So that we're equipped. It's good for everything we need, and it helps us to be equipped for every good work. Sometimes we need to be reminded that the Bible that you carry around whether it's a physical Bible or it's your phone or your tablet, is no ordinary book. It is the Word of God. And regardless what, I can't believe I'm going to say this, regardless of what many pastors might tell you, preachers, theologians might be saying today, the Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is infallible. It is inerrant, which means it doesn't have errors in it. It can be trusted, and it can be believed. If we can't believe that as Christians, that the Bible is the Word of God, then what are we doing? When the Bible turns out to be, well, it has some mistakes in it, and well, it it, it doesn't really mean that, and well, I, I, I like this part, but I don't like that part. When we start believing that, and we start acting on that, then we are nothing but a social club. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Its words are the very words of God that were given to men who wrote them down as they were led by the Holy Spirit. In the pages of the word of God, we find the truth of who God is. We find the truth of who we are. We are sinners. In it, we not only find the identity of who Jesus Christ is, we also find the way to be saved. We find the source of all of our faith in the Word of God. In the Word of God, we find help for every battle we face, and we find hope for every road that we travel. We find peace for the times of turmoil. We find peace for the times of sorrow. And we find joy to sustain us in those times of sorrow. Where? In the Word of God. We find wise answers for all the questions of life. And we find guidance and direction for every path we walk. But we have to know and believe that it is the inspired Word of God. Because if it's not, then just pick up a book off the shelf of the library and read it. Well, pastor, that's a little harsh. It's the truth. If we don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then it's just another book. Listen to what John Wesley said regarding the divine authorship of the Scripture. He said, the Bible must have been written by God or good men or bad men or good angels or bad angels. But bad men and bad angels would not write it because it condemns bad men and bad angels. And good men and good angels would not deceive by lying about its authority and claiming that God wrote it. Let me say that again. Bad men and bad angels would not write it because it condemns bad men and bad angels. And good men and good angels would not deceive by lying about its authority and claiming that God wrote it. And so the Bible must have been written as it claims to be written, by God who by his Holy Spirit inspired men to record his words using the human instrument to communicate his truth, end of quote. That's powerful right there. It tells us that it had to be by by God as he inspired men to write. And we need to look at the Word of God, what we refer to as the Bible, as a book to be read, a book to be believed, a book to be loved and shared and trusted. We need to saturate our lives with the truth. We need to soak in the glories it contains because there is no other book like it in the world. And just as that short sword was an everyday essential to the work of a Roman soldier... The word of God is an everyday essential to the Christian soldier. We have to have it. We don't just go to it when we have a problem. It is so much more than just, oh, I I need an answer right now. It's It's a word that guides us. There's a word in our text that I want to look at for a moment. It's really important, so stay with me here. The word that Paul used for word in verse 17 is from the Greek word rhema. The word rhema literally means an utterance. In other places in the New Testament, four Greek words are translated as word in our English Bible. Two of those words are used most often. We're going to talk about those today. One of those words is logos, and the other word is rima. Let's look at both of those words. Logos, first of all. This refers to something said. It also refers to the thoughts behind the words. The word logos is often used, most often, to speak of the entirety of the Word of God. So logos is the totality of the Word of God. It's the Bible. So when you hear the word logos, you think of the Bible as a total book. So another word for Bible would be logos. Word. And then there's this word Rhema. Rema, this word refers to an utterance, specific utterance. When it is used in the Word of God, it does not speak of the whole word of God. Instead, it speaks of smaller sections or individual words. Hang on, we're going somewhere. A Rhema is also described as a verse or a portion of scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to our attention with application to a current situation or need for direction. So when we're in trouble, it's that word that comes back to us from the Holy Bible, from the Bible or the Word of God. That is a rhema word that comes to us for a specific need. So when Paul uses the word word in verse 17, rhema is the word that he's talking about here. He's not referring to the whole Bible, but to shorter specific sections of Bible, to individual words or phrases, if you will. So he's not referring to the big giant sword. He's referring to a shorter sword, a specific sword. Look at this. In Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and faced uh, Satan's temptation, Jesus responded to every attack of the devil by quoting Scripture. That's what he did. In Matthew 4, verses 4, 7, and 10, each time the devil came against him, he pulled out the sword of the word, swung it, and he said, it is written. And then he quoted passages from the Old Testament. See if it helps, if this helps. Think of the Bible in its entirety as a, a vast armory. And in that armor, armory, there are weapons of every size and description. Each of those weapons is designed for specific types of battle. You may have heard it said before you don't bring a gun to a knife fight or you don't bring a knife to a gunfight actually probably be a better way around. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. That's the idea here as well. When times of temptation or satanic attacks come against us, it is impossible or impractical to try to throw the entire Bible at the attacker. And we just start at Genesis 1 and just start reading through the Bible when we're being attacked. No. What we need then and there is a specific word, that rhema word, something specific from the Word of God that speaks to an individual circumstance. You with me so far? Okay. That's what Jesus did. Three times he was attacked by Satan when he was in the wilderness. Three times Jesus stepped into the armory of the Word of God. He selected the very weapon, the very passage he needed for each individual encounter. Jesus did not try to repel Satan's attack with the whole Bible. He chose the precise weapons he needed for each attack. Look at it again. Matthew 4.4, 4. he responded to this attack. Jesus used a portion, uses a portion of Deuteronomy 8.3 that says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Matthew 4.7, the devil comes against him, and he, again, he uses a portion of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 6.16, where he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Matthew 4.10, the third time the devil comes against him, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Specific weapon for the specific need. Jesus was so familiar with the word of God that he was able to select the proper rhema in each attack. His wise use of Rhema allowed him to achieve, achieve victory over the devil. It's interesting to note, watch this. Jesus could have just verbally rebuked Satan. He was God in the flesh. He could have just verbally rebuked him, but he didn't. Instead, he used the word of God as his sword. Who do we think we are when the devil attacks us and we think we can just mouth off to Satan? Jesus didn't do that. Stay with me. Three times Jesus was attacked. And three times Jesus used the rhema to repel the attacks of the devil. Each rhema that he used, each passage of of verse of of scripture that he used that Jesus quoted not only warded off the devil's attack, but it also launched a tactical attack or counter move that Satan could not endure. So he wasn't just standing at this point. He wasn't just covering the blows with a sword and getting hit in the head with a helmet. No, at this point he did more than that. He pulled out that little knife and he did a couple slashes. When the devil was faced with the truth from the word of God, he had to abandon his attack and flee. And I will tell you this, the word of God has not changed. The word of God is still powerful. And when the devil comes against you, you can try to stand there on your own. It won't work, but you can try to stand there on your own. But if you will use the word of God and you will pull out that Rima scripture, that Rima passage for the individual attack that you're experiencing, I promise you the devil will have to flee. But let's be clear here. We need to be so familiar with the armory, the Bible, that we know where all the swords are placed. And then when the enemy attacks us, we will be able to repel his attacks with the word of God. And this will enable us to stand against the assaults of the enemy. The Bible is a defensive weapon. It is an offensive weapon. It can be used either way. But in the context that Paul is writing here, it was an offensive weapon that is used to attack. And by doing that, it allows us to take the battle to the enemy. We don't have to just stand there cowering under the the, the blows of the enemy. We rise up, and we take the word of God. We take the scripture, and we fight back. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, It penetrates even to the dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. James 4, 7 tells us that when we resist the devil, if we use the word of God, he will flee from us. And I say resist the devil with the word of God because he isn't going to run from you. And he isn't going to run from me just because we're whoever we think we are we have to have a weapon that can be used for defense as well as offense, and that weapon is the Word of God. But here's here's the thing, where we're headed today. If we don't know what the Word of God says, if it is not hidden in our heart, we have nothing. So then when the devil attacks us, and we don't know what the Word of God says, the best we can do is stand there and go, "Uh, I got nothing. I I don't know. And I will assure you that that in a battle for your life, that's not a place you want to be standing. The Word of God is powerful. And when it is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it transforms sinners. It invades the darkness And it brings people into the light. It enters the tomb of their dead condition and it breathes life into their spirit. The word of God is powerful for us as believers as well. The living word changes sadness into joy. It changes despair into hope. It changes stagnation into growth. It changes immaturity into maturity. And it changes failure into success. If we want to see the things happen in our own lives, if we want to see the things happen at High Point Church that we say we want to happen, we need to know what the Word of God says. I've already alluded to this, but let me say it again. The problem with so many folks in churches today is they are not familiar with what God has said in His Word. Well, I I don't have to know what it says. If I get in trouble, I'll call the pastor. He'll give me a good scripture. He'll give me a rima. No, you need to know where in that armor you can go find your own. I might be on the phone with someone else. Then what are you going to do? And because folks, so many folks don't know what the Word of God says, when they are attacked by the enemy, they resort to some tactic of their own doing, and that just doesn't work. But if they knew the Word of God and the location of the various weapons and where they're located, they wouldn't be so helpless and they wouldn't live such a defeated life. Maybe the reason, if you just keep getting beat down, I'm going to say it. Maybe you don't have all the armor of God on. And if all you're doing is just defending the blows of, of the devil, and that's the best you can do, and at some time you feel like all you're doing is just laying here holding your shield up and saying, please don't kill me. If that's the extent of your walk with God, it's time to not only stand, it's time to stand up. It's time to know what the word of God says. Pick up your sword and swing. Stop being defeated. You don't have to be defeated. Remember, we've, back in the very beginning, we've already established the, 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 the war is already won. Jesus did that. We have victory. When Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again, that was victory was won. All we're doing now is fighting battles on our way to heaven. So I will tell you this. The only way to know the Bible and learn where these various weapons are located is to read the Bible and learn what's in it. Sounds simple enough, right? That means we have to pick it up. We have to open the pages and learn what it, it's trying to teach us. And, and not just depend on what the pastor feeds us on Sunday morning. Yes, we need to be on ch- in church on Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. Yes, we need to be on Sunday morning. Yes, we need to be in Bible study on Wednesday night. But we also need to learn how to feed ourselves spiritually. And we do that by studying the Word of God. We're going through a discipleship uh, course on Wednesday nights and have been for several weeks now. And one of the things that we've been talking about specifically is studying the Word of God. If we are going to become disciples of Jesus, how can we do it if we don't know what he said? The disciples, his original 12, you know how they became disciples? Because they followed him around three years. They heard his words. They saw what he did. They lived it. Their lives shadowed him and then echoed him and and mirrored his. So that when he was gone, there was something down inside of them. They knew the man. But if we don't know what the word of God says, we don't know Jesus. Thomas Guthrie said this. He said, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a bomb for every wound. Rob us of our Bible, and our sky has lost its sun. If we would think of the importance of the Word of God like that, we would spend time in it personally. The Bible is the Word of God. It is the source of our faith. It is the only source we possess for learning about God, for learning about Jesus, for learning about salvation, sin, and heaven and hell. And we must learn its truths, or when we face the devil, we will find out that we are helpless. And that's not the time to find out you're helpless. The Bible is also our source for happiness, our source of peace, our source of spiritual growth, and it's the source of power for living daily. The Bible is indispensable for the Christian who desires to be successful in his or her walk for the Lord. In John MacArthur's commentary on the book of Ephesians, he shares the following quote from H.P. Barber. I'm going to read this. It's a lengthy reading, but I I think it's very important. Here's what H.P. Barber wrote. As I looked out into the garden one day, I saw three things. First, I saw a butterfly. The butterfly was beautiful, and it would alight on a flower, and then it would flutter to another flower, and then to another only for a second or two. It would sit and it would move on. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from it. Then I watched a little bit longer out of my window, and there came a botanist. And the botanist had a big notebook under his arm and a great big magnifying glass. The botanist would lean over a certain flower, and he would look for a long time, and then he would write notes in his notebook. He was there for hours writing notes. He closed them, stuck them under his arm, tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket, and walked away. The third thing I noticed was a bee, just a little bee. But the bee would light on a flower, and it would sink down deep into the flower, and it would extract all the nectar and pollen that it could carry. It went in empty every time and came out full. Then Dr. MacArthur adds his commentary to H.P. Barber's writings. Here's what Dr. MacArthur wrote. Some Christians like that butterfly flit from Bible study to Bible study, from sermon to sermon, from commentary to commentary, while gaining little more than a nice feeling and some good ideas. Others like the botanist study Scripture carefully and take copious notes. They gain much information but little truth. Others, like the bee, go to the Bible to be taught by God and to grow in knowledge of Him. And also, like the bee, they never go away empty. Amen. Amen. If you have access to a Bible, whether it's a physical book Bible or an electronic version, you are blessed with a precious treasure. Cherish it. Read it, study it, learn from it, love it. And probably most important, live it. Do as David said in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart way down deep. We need to make the, the Bible our daily bread. We need to use it daily and hold on to it firmly as we wear the armor of God. And if we will do that, when the enemy comes against us, and be assured that he will, when the enemy comes against us, as it says in Ephesians 6.13, we will be ready to stand. And when we have done all else, we will stand. I want to clarify something about this spiritual warfare study and the full armor of God. We don't spend several weeks looking at a topic like this so that you can live your best life now. Yes, this is for when we go through life and we learn how to fight battles that will come against us. That's what this armor does. It is to help us not to fail as we're on this journey this Christian journey. But it's not just for now. The Christian journey is our journey to where? It's our journey to heaven. This is not just about fighting battles on the earth. It is about that. But it goes way beyond that. This is so that we can fight the battles we face in this life as we are are on this journey, this Christian journey. It's more than that. This is so that we can go to heaven. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But if at some point and the devil comes against us and we, we, we just say, I, I got nothing, and we turn around and run, and we say, I'm not fighting this battle anymore. I quit. I'm done with this. Then what have we accomplished The goal is not just so you can live, as I said, your best life now. Yes, that's great. The goal is that we make it to heaven. Because if you live your best life now, and you find success all along the way, and then at some point before you leave this world, you say, That, and we walk away from it well I thought you said my salvation is secure it is no one can snatch your salvation away from you no one can snatch you out of his hand but you can walk away and say no If you don't agree with me, see me after church and I can show you a lot of scripture that says that. You can walk away from God. And whatever reason it might be that you do, discouragement, doubt, the battle got too hard, people, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter what the reason was, the end result is still the same. You won't go to heaven. And the devil wins again. I did not start this journey to quit. I did not get in this battle to lose. Have I taken some lumps along the way? You betcha. But I'm still in the battle. Again, I I want to make sure we understand we don't wear this armor of God because it makes us feel good. We don't wear this armor of God and carry this sword around because it makes us happy. If you get happy because of it, fantastic. But I didn't find anywhere in the word of God that it just makes you happy. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, which means there's going to be stuff happen. But he said, but take heart. I have overcome, which means he won the victory already. We're just fighting battles along the way. Don't put the armor on for the wrong reason. Well, Pastor David said that I would feel better. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. What Pastor David says, you'll live instead of dying in the battle. And if you live, that means you stay in the battle. And if you stay in the battle, then when you finally leave this life, that means you will go to your reward in heaven. Remember, Paul said, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Therefore, because I fought a good fight, because I've kept the faith, there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me. That's why we fight this fight. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Would you stand this morning? You can be victorious, and if you will wear the armor of God, you will be victorious. Pick up that sword that is the Word of God. Study the Word. Put it in your heart. Put it in your mind. And you will be able to stand. As the worship team sings this morning, I I want us again just to to come up to the front here. I want us to pray. If you need prayer this morning, we will pray with you. We'll pray for you. But I'd like everyone who will just come up and let's pray. If you don't need to pray, then just stand here and worship. Let's praise Him. He is worthy of our praise. Hallelujah. This song is...